You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall, editors of the Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM. Welcome back to the Batuta Advocate radio show. It's just Clancy Overall here this week. As we said earlier, uh, Errol Parker is currently chasing a story in Berlin. Uh, the the Bahnhof, a uh, region of Berlin, famous for the nightclub, the Berghain, which it's about f- six in the morning over there right now, and I dare say he's getting ready to go out, and he he reckons he's going to get in. He just has to hand his phone over, and he'll be inside. So uh, we'll wait to hear back from that. There'll be a few stories coming out of Australia's newest London, Berlin, in the next few weeks. In the meanwhile... Uh, in the studio today at Baxter Boot Studio, downtown Batuta, we've got uh, another iconic Queensland wordsmith in the shape of Benjamin Law. How are you, mate? G'day. I'm really well. Thanks for having me. Now, you are from that part of the world, which you wouldn't actually call, uh, originally, you wouldn't mm. uh, call where you were from the Sunshine Coast. You'd call it the... Well, it is. I did grow up on the Sunshine Coast, but in the kind of decidedly non-glamorous, aggressively suburban, next to a highway part of okay. the Sunshine Coast. So rather than hearing the waves at night, you'd hear, you know, the little doot, doot, yeah. doot of the of the traffic button so you could actually cross the road. Yeah, that, right. that was That was the soundtrack of my youth. Okay. So was this Nambour? Uh, I was born in Nambour, okay. uh, uh, hometown a, to Wayne Swan and Kevin there. Rudd. Yeah. Well, it was the only hospital. So mm. I have to say that I came from Nambour. That's still what I put down on my mm. passport and yeah. stuff like that. It was the only hospital around. Um, but then I grew up in the rich surrounds of Kiwana. Oh, beautiful. Kiwana, between between Caloundra and like Malulaba. I call it the perineum <laughs> of the Sunshine Coast. It's between things. Yeah, a hinterland of sorts. Hmm. Kind of. I mean, there is is a hinterland on the Sunshine Coast, which is lush and green and mountainous, whereas uh, my landscape was, as I said, a highway, um, an artificial canal that was full of sometimes dying turtles, uh, but it was pleasant enough. So you kind of got to really feel the kind of Queensland glow up. Um, You got to see (laughs) the industrial kind of coming of age. Yeah. You might have been there under Joe. I was there under Joe. In fact, the funny thing is, I went to a very conservative Lutheran school on the Sunshine Coast. Oh, they would have been proud of him. And, uh, well, they were so proud, in fact, that the pastor of our school was Joe Bjorka Peterson's son-in-law. And so when Joe got knocked off his perch by, well, I guess his own party and Micah Hearn, the the news was treated with somberness at our school. I think I I think a somberness that probably set it apart from a lot of yeah. the rest of the state. Certainly different to what was probably happening in Musgrove Park at the time. Probably what was different to happening well uh, the rest of the country at the time. <laughs> now tell us, uh, you've spoken a lot about growing up that way, and uh-huh. um, most recently in your show. Uh, What's the Dragon? Yeah. As as we learnt through your kind of writing and your, your recent documentary series, you'll find Chinese com- Australian communities all over Australia. Yep. But there wouldn't have been a big one. No, not where we were growing up. So Waltzing the Dragon, which was this two-part series that we did for the ABC, it was about Chinese-Australian history, but the format was a road trip, one mm. with my mum, one with my dad, retracing their steps. And really, as much as we talk about the Chinese being pioneers during the gold rush, obviously, I kind of feel like mum and dad were pioneers in their own way mm. in the Sunshine Coast yeah, in the 1970s. Sure. There just were so 
few other Chinese people. In fact, there was one other Chinese family there who were running the Chinese restaurant, and that's why my parents came over from from Hong Kong. I look back now and. I realised that I grew up in such a monoculture, but I didn't think of it that way at the time. But I could really count the number of other Chinese kids, Asian Australian kids, kids who weren't white mm-hmm. at my school. And I went to a big school, probably in my year level on a single hand. Yeah. It didn't bother me at the time. I just knew I was different. Um, that didn't need to be a liability. But then, you know, later you go to high school during the height of Hansenism round one and you realise, yeah. ah, it's kind of a liability in its own way. Yeah. Now, the closest thing I can think of would be Kevin Rudd. Yeah. He could speak Mandarin. Yeah. We came a long way from... We came a long way in those years from Hanson to Rudd, didn't we? Yeah, completely. That was a that was quite a kind of roundabout. But at the same time, I also look back on um, the era of Hansonism and everyone kind of talks about it as, wow, that's such a... That's such a blip and anomaly in yeah, Australian history. Well, actually, Not in terms you. of anti-Chinese yeah. racism, the, the blip and the, the anomaly was probably the era in which I grew up, which was like late 80s, start of World Expo, celebration of multiculturalism, and then it kind of ended. There was, there was only a brief reprieve from it in a way. How does that make you feel now, looking back at what was obviously felt so very real at the time and was as a Chinese-Australian under Hansen? And uh, I'm sure the rhetoric, the rhetoric on the TV would have been pretty red hot, but I'm sure it was much worse in the schoolyard. To now look at this new and improved One Nation who <laughs> try to pretend that didn't happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah completely. Uh, so when you ask that question, it makes me think of the time I actually trailed Pauline Hanson on the New South Wales state election campaign yeah. where no one thought she had a chance in hell of winning, and she didn't in the state election, but of course she would rise like a phoenix uh, with the Australian Senate. I I did ask her about that. I said, look, Pauline, obviously during that period, there was a lot of anti-Chinese racism happening at the time. And my feeling is that was very strongly associated with your rise and anti-Asian rhetoric. And she, as much as they don't prosecute the anti-Asian rhetoric specifically now because it's kind of gone out of fashion, mm. it's more about Muslims and Sharia law, mm. in that period she she talks about it as if, well, I was right, wasn't I? Like, Australia's become much more Asian, like we are swamped. Mm. <laughs> it's kind of like she will never apologise for yeah. stoking the flames of hatred. Yeah. But you're finding it now, it's gone another way where it's it's a conversation politicians don't have because mm. they are, they've seen how nasty it can be. I mean, the last thing you want with diplomatic relations is another shirt front when you're dealing with a, you know, with a big government. And Russia has was obviously uh, Abbott's greatest gaffe. Mm. And uh, I guess Australians haven't been that confident in politicians talking about China or to China since Rudd. That's true, and I actually feel like uh, these kind of simmers are reaching boiling point now. We've always had a bit of a dance with China, especially, you know, from China opening its gates mm-hmm. onwards, and that relationship has always been tense because obviously uh, communist country, authoritarian state, one of the main reasons that Australia became such a heavily populated Mandarin-speaking population is because of the events of Tiananmen Square. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we also know that we've got a long history of anti-Chinese racism, Mm -hmm. so we don't want criticism about China to be conflated with criticism about Chinese people. And now things are reaching a really interesting point with what's going on in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. And I think Hong Kong 
because that's where my folks are, have really forced people to become much more nuanced in their conversation about China, about Chinese people, about Hong Kongers, about Hong Kong, all of that stuff. Uh, What's happening, say, between mainland Chinese government and what's going on in Hong Kong is, is a horrible state of affairs. But one interesting side effect, I think, has been a much more... Uh, nuanced, hopefully, conversation. Uh, we still sometimes fall into the trap about uh, with with anti Chinese xenophobia. Mm-hmm. I think that's pretty because uh, it's so easy for politicians to do that. That's what they. Tr- that's why they fall into it because it's so much easier to to push a hot button than than talk with nuance. I think I think it's before. much more codified now. Yeah. You know, we we talk about our anxieties about real estate, even mm. though you can't you know participate mm. in an Australian auction unless you're an Australian resident or citizen. We talk about our anxieties with baby milk formula and stuff yeah. like that. But that's um, a slow news. That's a slow news day on a current affair. That yeah, one. yeah, yeah. So so I think it, it's become much more kind of fragmented. Yeah. Your your family kind of migrated in the seventies, you say. Yeah, mid nineteen seventies. Mid nineteen seventies, and so they would have had a very different um, experience. You kind of went through that a little bit. Um, you spent a bit of time up north, um, North Queensland, about the history of of China up there. Atherton mm. Tablelands, yeah, had some sort of a Chinatown, I guess you could say. Yeah, basically they had um, the whole kind of economy there mm-hmm. when it came to them harvesting the fields. I mean, if you go to far north Queensland, so much of the landscape that you see there that now is land that's conducive to growing crops, they were cleared by the Chinese. What was once uh, bushland and scrub, that was cleared by Chinese people. During the war, yeah. uh, Chinese people would grow crops there, start an economy also with local indigenous people that they'd hire. Uh, when the war ended, uh, they were basically forced off the land they had cleared because you weren't allowed to own land. So it's really interesting seeing how not only Chinese people changed um, the kind of social landscape, but the actual literal landscape. Yeah, the last names particularly um, in uh, the Aboriginal communities up north Mm. and and in the non-Aboriginal communities. I mean, the last, before Pauline's uh, renaissance, as you were talking (laughs) about earlier, her last MP at a state level, after that landslide win that she took in 13 and then did what she does best, where lost them all to independence or res- resignation. The last MP she had uh, was a white woman with a Chinese last name yeah. in uh, in North Queensland <laughs> in that era. It's particularly funny to think about. But Cairns had a Chinatown as well. I mean, and, and Cairns had a particularly big community, still does. Yeah, and if you if you go to some parts of Cairns and you talk to the Chinese population there, not only do they have like a significant community, but a lot of the people know exactly where they belong on the family tree. They're like, I'm the third daughter of the fourth son of the third daughter of the second daughter of the first wife of Kwong Su Duck. And it's like, well, how do you even know that? And you've got these photographs that look like they were taken at the turn of the century in you know imperial China, but they were taken in 1904 in Cairns. It's wild. How was that? Navigated because I know the uh, kind of Italian, the indentured migrants, Italian Maltese, up in that part of the world, and of course the South Sea Islanders had a lot of trouble marrying mm. marrying white people. Yeah, but it seemed to be something that was almost much more common with the Chinese population up there. And I think there were, there were probably mixed reactions yeah. uh, as, as as you know, Australian history is kind of complex yeah. with its race relations generally. A lot of the Chinese men started having uh, white wives in Australia while simultaneously having Chinese wives yeah. in China who never came over. So they'd maintain these two families, sometimes with both wives' knowledge. A bit like and, an old Qantas pilot, eh? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and sometimes without the knowledge. Uh, so I think there was a little bit of a, a, a dance 
going on sometimes with these dynasties. Yeah. Was it done in waves or was it just a consistent trickle, you reckon, of, of migration from China? Well, I mean, what was really interesting about the documentary was that it showed that there's been Chinese Australians in the country since before the gold rush. Yeah. You know, we're, we're always taught in school that they came during the gold rush and blah, 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 blah. And certainly that was such a huge, significant wave of people who actually thought they were going to go back to China with their riches. But just because you come over for a gold rush doesn't mean you find all of the gold. But there were indentured labourers before that. And even prior to that, Chinese were driving this trade um, with the Yongu people mm-hmm. through the Macassans who would come over and harvest sea cucumber. There was already this really yeah. rich, robust complex economy already going and and largely respectful economy too um that kind of whole idea that you can only participate in a global economy if you loot plunder and Mm -hmm. kill is is kind of ridiculous yeah there's a few uh words i know that have popped up in manangrita to this day that are used by the um the elders up there which would point back to china Mm. um and you know obviously a lot through um Torres Strait. And, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And if you go, like we did in the documentary, you go to um, northeast Arnhem Land, where the Yolngu people have had that big trade with Macassans in Indonesia. This predates white arrival mm-hmm. by a long time. And they know where their family is in mm-hmm. Indonesia, their extended family. There, there's Macassan language within Yolngu language and apparently vice versa. That's how porous that trade was. Yeah. Right. yeah. Now, you said uh, growing up uh, you only really saw the gold rush in Tiananmen Square. That's that's about mm. the only two dot points. Yeah, if you were even lucky, if you, yeah. if you did that much history in high school. Yeah. yeah. Australian curriculum, and, and probably to this day it could still be, be very like, criticised for being quite revisionist, but, you know, there are a lot of identities that I guess on a local level people know about. You know, mm. LJ Hooker, uh, famous yep. real estate baron, uh, you know, proud Chinese Australian, although it wasn't just it wasn't public knowledge. Yeah, and of course, all the Anzacs, Billy Singh and Caleb mm. Shane, um, both Queenslanders. Billy Singh had the they used to brag about these kind of things, but the biggest kill rate in a Gallipoli, one hundred and fifty yeah, plus right. confirmed kills, and those stories kind of disappear. Yeah, you know, Simpson and his donkey, whereas you don't hear so much about Billy Singh mm-hmm. or uh, you know Caleb Shane. D- did you find uh, in, in your kind of research this this hidden history from you? Hidden, hidden Australian kind of figures. I mean, of course, there's also the white Chinese as well that came via Russia. So much of what we learned in the documentary was just not something that had been on my radar. And I studied history right throughout high school. I was one of the kids when we were given the electives of what you would study this semester. I was the one who studied communist China, for mm-hmm. instance. So I should know so much of that history, but I just didn't. You know, the, like obviously the Macassan trade, which has been captured in art and literature before, mm-hmm. that just wasn't something that I was that clear about. I didn't know the timeline of the fact that there were shepherds here before the gold rush. These kind of icons that you're bringing up now you know these are names that we should all know and i think when all of in all of the culture wars when they when everyone says we should know our history more like that's right but mm-hmm. what they we need to do by extension of that is to know all of our histories mm-hmm. plural i think people are really tense and anxious about a complicated mm-hmm. or contradictory 
history, whereas I think mature nations actually lean into the complexities and are able to acknowledge that, yes, we're a great country that has had um, racial tensions, but also racial cooperation. This is how multiculturalism was forged. Yes, it was on the basis of settling and genocide. We need to acknowledge that surely we're able to incorporate all these different parts of history simultaneously that that rub up against each other mm. because that's a story of any nation. Do, do you have any examples of any countries you think have probably done a better job at that? Well, maybe I, I was recently in New Zealand mm. and I find it quite astonishing when you go to basically any official event and you've got plenty of Pakia, which is mm. white settler New Zealanders, um, doing at least part of the proceedings in, in, in te reo Maori. Mm. And when I went to this conference over there, this screen conference, uh, you've got a lot of Maori community elders and leaders having and delivering the formalities in te reo. And then they switch to English and say, look, the reason we're doing this is not to exclude you, but to also use our language because it is an endangered language. And what I learned is that critical mass for any language is 250,000 speakers. And if, you know, you actually see Toreo being used in like kindergartens and schools and the fact that non-Maori people know a little bit at least, like they're far ahead of Australia and even then they're talking about an endangered language. But I think there is this kind of better sense of national, if not pride, then acknowledgement of what the country is, which is a complicated country with a mm. complex past. I don't think Australia has gotten to that stage where we can mm. even reconcile, you know, forget reconciliation country. I don't think we can reconcile even within ourselves a lot mm. of the time that we've got a complicated past. We deny it actively so, so often and steamroll it. But now, but now I start seeing kids, um, you know, they know the kind of Aboriginal stories of of their country that they're on. They know acknowledgement of country. They sort of start the school day with it. That's that's something that's just kind of happened within the last 15 years that I've noticed of being outside of school. I think there is um, an opportunity there for us to find, you know, for all of our hand-wringing over who we are as a nation. I think countries like New Zealand, countries like Taiwan have found it within their Indigenous populations and their Indigenous stories. Yeah, I guess the Irish are pretty good at it as well. They just refuse to not talk about it. Don't, yeah. don't mention the troubles. Yes. <laughs> now, on, on the same note, you know, there's uh, complex conversations about, uh, you know, who's represented and who whose story is worth hearing. Mm. You've come from a journalistic background. Uh, are you of the opinion right now that Australian media might be a bit off the mark? Uh, just, just in general. Not, we're not talking race. Not talking. Yeah. Um, just, just talking stories. Just talking stories that penetrate and stories that disappear into the air. Um, I mean, maybe we could drill it down into more specifics. I find it hilarious that you know we seem to be a country that has like this glut of political commentators, mm. but usually they are from the same background, the same class, mm. roughly the same age, yep. and uh, for don't. for the myriad numbers of them. I'm kind of like wondering, like, shouldn't we have more interesting or diverse perspectives? Yeah. I think uh, it's just a moral surface that makes them different to each other. Well, I just think it's a it's a bit of a class that's a little bit self congratulatory, mm. but usually ends up coming to very similar conclusions. Yeah. Um, if you're not going to have people from different ages, different backgrounds, different experiences in there, this is supposed to be a conversation that affects us all. So, so I do think like political media commentary mm. uh, in Australia is sometimes a little bit focused through 
a singular lens and they might say, look, we've got some, you know, progressive journalists over on this side and we've mm. got like journalists from the Australian over on that side. And I'm like, they there's might, more than that. And they there's might have gone to the same school anyway. <laughs> exactly. Completely. And they often have. I mean, I mean, Parliament definitely has. Yeah. A lot of uh, the country's media were shocked after the last election because mm. it was... We didn't see it coming. Like people were in big business were following the lead of the media and were already writing off which, you know, s- senator I need to get close to, which MP, who's going to be in this cabinet position because it was just such a sure thing. And it actually affected, it affects the economy that way because yeah. people are prepared for a changeover and then they... It's not coming. And then we've got a government come through with a whole lot of battlefield promotions. So you yeah. haven't really heard these people's names before and now they're in charge of foreign affairs. Well, recently I interviewed um, Dave Sharma, who's mm-hmm. the new MP for Wentworth, who did actually win his seat off Karen Phelps, who had it for a very, very brief period. And he even admitted to me that he, I mean, I'm not sure that he can represent anyone except himself, but at least he didn't even see that, that victory for his own party mm-hmm. coming. So I, I don't know what that tells us, whether that's a story about media discussions or whether that's a story about social research and polling and all of that stuff. It's probably a story about all of those things. But I also do wonder if it's a story, I mean, for all of these cliches of silent and quiet mm. Australians... I don't know, are we looking at those stories properly? Are we having those conversations in good faith? Because Australia is a big continent. Mm -hmm. And I also feel like at the last election as well, I was having really like head fuck conversations with members of my family where I said, so, you know, what issues are you taking to the ballot box? Everyone said the environment in my family and yet they voted you know, plenty of my family members voted for the coalition. And that kind of stands with the data. I recently was involved in the Australia Talks special on the ABC, you know, biggest survey of Australians outside of the census. And the data keeps coming back that the number one issue for all Australians is the environment. But this narrative hasn't really reached Australians where political policy necessarily translates to environmental change or protection. It's it's why why not? Yeah. Like I'm not sure anyone's explained that yet. But d- didn't we see this? You could argue we saw this with the plebiscite, where mm-hmm. it felt like everyone was ready to go for five years before they went about it the weirdest way they possibly could have. Yeah, I mean, I think. What's... Do they need to be led by big business? Is that kind of how it feels? I mean. They really started listening when A and Z changed their logo to have a rainbow in it. I I think it's a slightly different thing because I think the same-sex marriage thing, that discussion was a bit more straightforward in a way, which is if Parliament Parliament legislates for same-sex marriage, men and women will be able to marry each other, men with men, women with women, Mm -hmm. um, and hopefully everyone in between. Whereas I think with the climate change stuff... You know, it's slightly different because what people are saying doesn't match up with how they're voting. Yeah. Because with the polling with same-sex marriage, it was it was consistently like 60x percent yeah. want same-sex marriage, and that came up in the data. With something like climate change, it's like over 80% of Australians think it's the top issue, and yet their, their vote is completely different. So obviously there's some sort of disjoint between our politically held beliefs mm. and our understanding of what politics can do. I think... My theory is that people, a lot of people in Australia don't necessarily seeing any political party being able to do anything yeah. about climate change, that it's, that it's a global weather event. Mm-hmm. A vote in Australia is not going to change anything. Do you think there's a little bit of nihilism there? Or is Maybe. that just a dark millennial take on it? Maybe, but I also wonder that, I mean, you know, go back to my home state and start Mm. having a conversation about Adani and it becomes really, really complicated yet again. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah, it did make sense though. You know, mm. uh, people people don't really say much aloud until they go into the ballot. As much as the quiet Australian's been bandied out a lot in recent kind of months. I also uh, have this other theory. I wonder whether it's a American politics, British politics, Australian politics. People vote for the person they have strongest feelings towards. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? <laughs> Whereas I, I if whether you, if you can command hate, you know, yeah. the, what do they say? The opposite of hate isn't love. It's, it's an emotional investment. The opposite of love is actually apathy. And I'm just not sure people cared or felt anything about someone like Bill Shorten. <laughs> uh, and therefore, that's enough to actually kill your vote altogether. Absolutely. I remember we said the day we thought in the Tudor Advocate newsroom, uh, the day that we thought... Morrison was coming through again was Easter Sunday where he took the media into his church, mm, which was church, which yeah. was a bold decision considering um, what goes on in there. And then from there went to the Easter show, was photographed all day eating some sort of food and drinking some sort of soft drink, and then went from there to the Cronulla Sharks match, all the while wearing cargo trousers and a Cronulla Sharks hat. That is more kind of Queensland dad than Queensland dad, even yeah. though he's not a Queensland yeah. dad. Yeah. Like he could, e- he easily tapped into that state's vote. Absolutely, with those kind of semiotics. Yeah, and I kind of went. I thought just for for the record, this looks like a man who is campaigning very yeah. hard. Uh, I went and looked at what Shorten had done that day, and he'd run a marathon with his wife and. Some someone else, Arnie, maybe. Mm-hmm. Like it was kind of what you do every weekend, run a marathon. Yeah. That's what I do. <laughs> yeah, I, I just think marathons are for for very impressive people. Yes. And if you want to cast a wide net, you're not going to get them with a marathon, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Let that be a lesson to Albo. Stay slightly unfit yeah. and yeah. eat whatever you want. Yeah, go to the wrestling, mate. Yeah. Now, um, tell us a little bit about the family law, which was mm-hmm. a family memoir published by you was uh, on SBS and um, may have been the first all-Asian leads in Australia. Yeah. So there have definitely been Asian-Australian characters Mm. in Australian TV before, but they tend to be characters like the Lim family on Mm -hmm. Ramsey Street, the first uh, Hong Kong Chinese family to to move into Ramsey Street who are promptly accused of barbecuing the neighbourhood dog. I'm not making that up. Look up the Lim family on Google and you see something quite shocking there. And as soon as, you know, of course they didn't um, barbecue the neighbourhood dog, all the white characters learnt that racism was bad and then the lesson was learned. So the Lim family just promptly disappeared from the street. Their usefulness was expired. They came for the lesson. Yeah, so with the family law, um, it was a pioneering show, the first ever Asian-Australian family at the centre of, of the show. Mm-hmm. Majority Asian cast, so over 90% Asian-Australian cast. But to be honest, you know, I'm so glad that we are a pioneering show, mm-hmm. but the bar is so low. Yeah that it doesn't take much to be a pioneering show on Australian TV sometimes. And to be honest, I actually feel like our show came too late because nowadays, and even when the show premiered, roughly one in ten Australians have significant Asian heritage. That's that's the same proportion of how many black Americans there are in the United States. Think of how much black representation there is in American media, in culture, popular culture or otherwise. And you're like, geez, we've got a long way to go in this country. Do you see in your work in production and, and, and media someone putting their foot down ever? Do you actually see these doors not opening? Uh, look, I've been quite lucky, I have to say. I've probably been the beneficiary of a lot of creatives who came through the system where there were even fewer faces like theirs. Um, so, for instance, Tony Ayres 
our executive producer, Chinese-Australian dude, Debbie Lee, another executive producer, Chinese-Australian woman. They were working in the screen industries where it was probably even more of a monoculture. And now that they're two of the most important and powerful gatekeepers mm-hmm. on Australian screen, they can bring people along with them. So, of course, I've been the beneficiary of that um, and being able to tell what I thought was quite, you know, a gentle story suddenly becomes this huge pioneering moment for Australian TV. And similarly with the third season, it was the first, um, you know, Australian TV show that showcased queer teen sexuality ever. Uh, Please Like Me, Josh Thomas's Please Like Me uh, did that for for younger adults. But to do something like teenagers actually having cognizance of of being gay, for instance, that just hadn't hadn't been done on Australian TV. And similarly, we weren't looking to necessarily break huge ground although of course i've got my own personal gay agenda yeah um, absolutely but but you don't have to do much in yeah. this with this country's tv landscape so, particularly during the plebiscite did you see that you were being accused of oh, like, of, of like a, some sort of conspiracy or well did, did you get much of that during the same-sex marriage postal survey i released uh, a quarterly essay mm-hmm. about the safe school scandal yeah. that really really dug into news corporation and specifically the Australian newspaper for their really dodgy, sometimes false coverage of safe schools and what they thought it was. Uh, so it was like not a coincidence that on the day the quarterly essay comes out, the Australian starts a, a campaign against me, taking a tweet where I offered my body to Andrew Hasty and other people like him saying, look, if it gets the homophobia out of your system, I'm up for it. And they were like, national rape advocate Benjamin Law wants to hate fuck... Andrew hate because I used the phrase hate fuck in my tweet and it's just like he wants to rape rape our MPs and so even to this day they're like you know like if, if I have a gig on the project or the ABC there'll be a few trolls lurking around Twitter saying how dare you have this rape advocate on your TV show I mean I should almost get it on a business card really jeez yeah yeah no um, I didn't actually think they'd twisted your words that hard but I did see a lot of talk about a kind of a rainbow mafia and this globalist kind of oh, yeah. gay feminist well, well, funded by Soros kind of thing. You, you do find that if you are some sort of like ethnic uh, or sexual minority in this country, and I happen to be both, I'm, I'm a walking ticker box, <laughs> that all other aspects of your professional life are erased. If you're talked about <laughs> in the public sphere, you suddenly become activist. Oh, so man. activist, Benjamin Law. I mean, like, I've got friends who are professional activists and I feel sorry that I've, my tweets have yeah. been conflated with their full-time profession, which is to advocate and agitate for social and political change. I'm like... I, I write TV shows and uh, stupid tweets, but activist. I yeah. mean, similarly, Yasmin Abdelmajid, Osman Faruqi, they're like... Well, Yasmin started as like a V8s kind of commentator, didn't yeah, she? Yeah, completely. This is a woman who is working on the rigs. You know, yeah. she she has friends who have worked to the rigs who vote for One Nation and yeah. stuff, and she's similarly to me a bit of a Queensland bogue. Yeah. But for her suddenly to be an inner-city activist or her mm. painted that way, if you know Yas, is pretty comical. But do you find that there's another end of the spectrum where you might, like, like you said, walking ticker box, get invited onto a panel and you realise, oh, it's not because of the work I've done, it's because they want my perspective. Sometimes I think my perspective should be included. So I'm kind of happy if if they want someone to introduce those kinds of topics. Mm -hmm. Um, Hopefully I bring that with merit. I mean, that whole idea of like 
tokenism. I'm, I'm kind of less anxious about tokenism and I'm more anxious about nepotism. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Like um, for all of these kind of hand-wringing about inclusivity campaigns yeah. and diversity initiatives, I think sometimes we forget that those initiatives exist because – you know, nepotism kind of breeds insularity. Yeah. Um, and certainly if you want me to, you know, MC something because you need some gay Asian, I will take the fuck out of your money. <laughs> yeah. Well, we spoke to Briggs uh, on the podcast before and he said he often gets um, invited somewhere or he'll be doing something. Or What will end up happening is he'll say something like, oh, rednecks can, you know, suck me off, rednecks get fucked. And he'll be met with a, like a golf clap from academics. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just, I mean, that's their level of enthusiasm. That's a, that's roaring applause in their circles. Yeah. Whereas he's just kind of looking at it as a sledge or just some sort of, you know, something that a rapper would say. That's just him <laughs> saying hello. Yeah. That's Briggs's g'day. Now, what are you working on at this moment? Okay, what am I working on at this moment? So I've got a play with Melbourne Theatre Company that starts Valentine's Day 2020. Uh, it's... Um, it's a play that looks at the mental illness that is compulsive hoarding, mm-hmm. and that condition braids together some of our most serious conversations at our time, like mental illness, capitalism gone wrong, real estate prices. So, of course, it's a comedy. So, uh, that, that, that's that. I've heard that's the fastest growing mental illness. Uh, apparently, over one million Australians have some sort of form of it on the spectrum, Boarding. which is like, yeah, which is, I guess, roughly what one in twenty-five people yeah. um, have trouble with their with their belongings. And for a long time, it was considered a subset of OCD, or some yeah. people thought, oh, well, if you've come from a deprived background, then obviously you're holding on to stuff. Uh, both of those things can be true, but the central thing um, that's at the core of most people's hoarding conditions is is unresolved trauma. Yeah, right. A lot of trauma. We live in a society um, where trauma happens and sometimes isn't resolved properly, and this is one of the manifestations of it. Yeah, I find it interesting. Um, anyone listening who's done Meals on Wheels as a kid would have seen this in like in full flight. Yeah, the things that get hoarded are so interesting. Mm. They're never as useful as you know hoarding money or yeah. hoarding gold. You know what Completely. I mean? Completely. It's uh, every third edition of this newspaper or something, you know, milk bottle caps. And if you read, there's a really great book that I based a lot of my research on. It's called Stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, It's by um, an American psychotherapist. And what he finds is that this junk that we don't see, that people without this condition don't see any value in, um, hoarders almost have this, like, incredible if you want to look at it that way ability to see usefulness in Mm -hmm. everything i mean of course for them their ability to categorize things is so eroded that the apparent use that they see in milk caps will never be used in that way but they really do have this genuine belief that you know this this screwed up usb cable can be used by someone again but i don't have time to do it now so they just need to hold on to it and if you get rid of it it's uh it's incredibly violating and distressing yeah that's that's what i guess you wonder really isn't it it's it must yeah must hurt to get rid of rich territory for theater so (laughs) so that's what i'm working on at the moment and look i've got my weekly gigs I, i interview people for good weekend and we talk about pop culture on abc rn and also working on an SBS drama that is kind of like a Deadwood Western mm-hmm. set in the goldfields of Australia in oh, the really? 1850s, yeah. Um, the Flats, hmm? down that way? Yeah. It's Lambing kind of, the Flats? Well, we were looking at like an area like Young, yeah. but we're probably going to set it in, in a place like Bendigo. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, the oldest uh, Joss Temple 
mm. in Australia. Yeah. Correct. Well, you see um, those beautiful, you know, the structures that do remain are mm. quite remarkable. The one that we went to in, in Atherton for Waltzing the Dragon is, is just stunning. If you're ever in North Queensland, mm. yeah, make time for it. Well, take note, listeners. This is uh, Benjamin Law. He's not in Kiwana anymore. Oh, you know, sometimes I get there. Yeah, they're still up there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Walk around Big W, my first ever paid job. All right. Shout out to Big W at Kiwana. <laughs> you might not exist for much longer. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us and uh, Merry Christmas up there at Kiwana. Mm-hmm.